0: Amen, indeed. Um, gosh, I'm glad you're here. I don't know if I'll ever get tired of worshiping with y'all. Um, you know, we're not the perfect church, but we really love Jesus. And I can tell, like, I just feel that when y'all are singing. So thank you for being here. Thank you for worshiping. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I'm the executive pastor. We started last week a series that I'm kind of excited about this summer. This is what we're going to do this summer. It's called Table Manners for Flawed People. And the premise for this series is is kind of this amazing truth, right? That when we meet Jesus, He ushers us into the kingdom of God. He introduces us to His kingdom, and He it's like He sits us down at a table. At one point, He uses that metaphor, the banquet of the king, and He he, he invites us to the table. Only here's the catch. We are not the only ones sitting at the table. And inevitably, we sit down at this table of our king, and we are sitting with people who are nothing like us. They value different things. They're motivated in different ways. They like to sin in ways that are different than how we like to sin. Um, And our temptation is to not understand them, And to, like, eject from those relationships. And it's like, well, let's go find some people that are easier to be around, right? And, And we do that over and over again, which is really unfortunate. Because what our Savior said to us is this. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then he said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. When we struggle to get along as a church, I think uh, that that table that Jesus has created for us, that the watching world looks at it and they might conclude, gosh, that Jesus y'all love is pretty small because he doesn't even seem big enough for y'all to stay together and love each other. So what we're trying to do this summer is we're trying to develop some table manners. We're trying to learn how to get along a little bit better. We're trying to understand how God made us, how God created other people very different than us, what makes people unique so that we can find some new pathways to love each other at the table of our King. Let me explain how understanding, let me just illustrate how understanding our differences can help. Let me give you an illustration. I am the sort of person who is always thinking about the future. Like, that's how my mind is oriented. I'm always thinking about what's next. In fact, right now, I'm not even thinking about the sermon. I'm thinking about what I'm going to do after church. That's just how I'm wired. We talked last week about Peter. He's the sole person sitting at this table so far. He might have been wired that same sort of way. I connect. I resonate with that. After 22 years of marriage to my wife, Becky, I have concluded she is not like that. She's not wired in that same way internally. Becky is the sort of person who is always focused on the present. And specifically, she's always oriented towards what she's doing and who she is doing it with. She's very focused on the people that she is with. Now, which one of those two things, being focused on the future or being focused on the present, is the right way of being? future, Future. thank you. (laughs) I was gonna say neither, but tell me more. <laughs> tell me more about how I'm right. Um, no. The truth is neither, right? Or rather, both are fine. You can see how God could use either of those things in powerful ways in his kingdom. For example, I love planning. I love strategy. I love vision. I love direction. I love all these things that tend to be future-oriented. And so I tend to pursue those sorts of things in my life. My wife, on the other hand, she loves sitting with people. She loves pressing into their stories. She is a life coach. She's amazing at it. She could sit across from a dozen people a day and just listen to their stories and soak that in, and she would love that. And everyone of those 12 people would walk away saying, gosh, Becky was so present. It seemed like she really cared, and she did. She's amazing at that. So both could be a strength, but could you see how occasionally uh, that difference could cause some conflict in our marriage? right? Um, As you can imagine, there are occasional moments where my tendency to think about what's next and her tendency to be focused on what is happening right now uh, causes some challenges. Specifically, at 11.55 a.m. every Sunday morning. That's like coming up in just a few minutes here. That is a moment that historically has been challenging because for me, thinking about the future, 11.55 church is over. Listen, I love all of you people, but there comes a point in the morning where I'm like, let's go to lunch. Let's take a nap. Let's go do something else with our day. I am ready to move on. Let's leave church. I'm confessing. I really do love you people. My wife, she cannot walk five feet without finding a new person to talk to. Uh, Does anyone else have trouble getting their spouse to leave church? Is it just me? Okay, a few hands. Okay, we'll form a support group. I've, I've explained this to my wife. I'm like, listen, you've got to learn how to walk with purpose. Like, just keep the feet moving. So you're like, hey, good to see you. Hey, happy Sunday, good to see you. The feet never stop moving, right? My wife she doesn't get it. She like she's walking like she's looking for someone to hug. She's like <laughs> 45 minutes later we're in the car and we're about to have words because it's uh, like I just struggle with it, right? Here's the deal though. I'm learning And I'm beginning to appreciate as God gives us this insight. And that was a revelation like, oh, I'm thinking about the future. She's thinking about the present. We're just very different. I can see how it's not a bad thing. It's just different. Suddenly have this whole new appreciation for what's going on inside of her. And I see how special it is. I love how she is able to be present for people. That's an incredible quality. She does that for me. And I love it. I'm so thankful for that. I don't want her to be like me right? I want her to be who she is. I want her to, I want to be able to appreciate this amazing difference between how I am and how she is, instead of constantly nagging her about the downside of how God made her, which in this case is, we leave church a little bit after I'd prefer. I see this at church all the time. We're just, we're created differently. We don't always understand those differences. And sometimes we just wind up nagging each other about the downside of how God created us. And we all have a downside, and eventually we just can't be around each other anymore. And I think what happens is what God created to be a beautiful combination of differences, it turns into this ugly competition of whose motives and whose values are better, I think what we fail to realize in that moment is how much we need each other and that God brought us to this table precisely because we are different, precisely because we don't see the world in the same way. And we have to understand ourselves a little bit better so we can be honest. Hey, here's kind of how I'm wired, how I prefer things, how I'm tricky. So we can also understand other people. Here's how they're wired, how they prefer things, how they're tricky. And we can learn to be at the table in healthy ways. So what we're doing is we're looking at nine Bible characters this summer that are all different, driven by different motives, different values, that if they were sitting at this table, they would struggle maybe to get along. And we're asking, could people like this so different fit together for God's kingdom purposes? Uh, If you're following along, these nine kind of line up with the Enneagram, if you know what that is. There's all sorts of great tools out there like the Enneagram or Myers-Briggs or Strength Finder that kind of help us understand ourselves, help us understand how maybe we fit with people who don't think anything like us. But really, one of the best tools of all is just finding our story in the Scriptures just finding people in the scriptures who uh, we connect to, and that's what we're going to do this summer. Last week, we looked at Peter uh, and how he was kind of oriented. I really relate to that guy. This week, we're going to look at another New Testament character. We are going to look at Paul. Now, Peter and Paul, they actually knew each other, um, and we'll talk about that in a second, but that's, that's where Paul's sitting, kind of across from Peter there. It's a small table, just two people now, but um, Paul is a fascinating character to me. You may know a little bit about his background. His Hebrew name was Saul, but at some point he began to be known by his Greek name, Paul. He wrote 13 books in the New Testament, which is about half of the books of the New Testament. And so we really get a picture of who he is in this book called Acts, which is not a book that he wrote, but it's written about him. Um, and, And we also get a picture of who he is from all these letters that he wrote to churches and to people in the early church. Saul was a Jew. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, um, but he was not born in Israel. He was born in a Roman city called Tarsus, which is in Turkey. And he was named after Saul, who was like also from the tribe of Benjamin. If you know your Old Testament, that was like a, the hero of the tribe of Benjamin was Saul. The great thing about Saul is we have so many words that he's written. You can really get a sense of just what this guy's personality was like. He even gives us a glimpse into his childhood. If you have a Bible, turn to Philippians 3. We're going to be back and forth in that today. Um, And he's talking in Philippians 3 about how, hey, we really shouldn't trust like what we do. Like, we really should trust the goodness of Jesus, and we all have this choice. Like, do I trust my own goodness, or do I trust the goodness of Jesus for salvation? And he's saying, we should trust that goodness of Jesus, but he, he, he talks about his own goodness, and he says something fascinating about it, and it gives us a glimpse into his childhood. Philippians uh, chapter 3, verse 4, he says, "'Though I myself have reasons for such confidence.'" If somebody else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. That's a confident statement, Right? And what he's telling us is this, based on the Old Testament law, from the day he was born, he checked every single box. Nobody had greater zeal, nobody made greater effort to be righteous than Saul. As a young man, he was trained by a guy who appears a couple times in the scriptures. Uh, It's a Jewish rabbi named Gamaliel. He was one of the more famous Jewish rabbis of the day. Saul was a Pharisee. Pharisees were heavily influenced by Gamaliel. He was the grandson of like one of the most famous Jewish rabbis of all, Hillel. He's a guy who still influences Jewish thought to this day the school of teaching that he came from, it was all about spiritual purity. There was an intense focus on being good. It was this spiritual tradition that was constantly looking for ways that we don't measure up to God's righteousness so that we could fix them and measure up. And they believed that one of the primary responsibilities, if you are one of God's people, was to eliminate sin from our lives. This system, it was totally focused on doing the right thing. And in a system like that, Saul absolutely flourished. I mean, this is probably true. If anyone had a shot at getting to heaven sheerly by self discipline, it was probably Saul. So naturally, Saul didn't particularly care for Jesus, he didn't really like Jesus' followers. Uh, and in fact, the first moment that we see Saul in the Bible is in Acts, this Christ follower named Stephen, he preaches this incredible sermon, and Saul's friends take issue with it, and they uh, stone him to death, like they throw rocks at him. Um, and Saul is the guy who's like holding their coats while they do this. That starts this incredible season of persecution for all those who believed in Jesus at the time and followed him, and at the center of all that persecution was Saul. Saul. And what drove him was this zeal for Israel, this passion for what was right. He was trying to fix the world. And he saw this Jesus and these Jesus followers who talk about Jesus being the Savior of the world and not the law, he saw that as incredibly threatening to all that was good. He didn't understand it. And in the next scene, we see Paul, he's like going to, to try to find some Jesus followers and throw them in prison. That was what he was doing after uh, Jesus died. He raises from the dead. And then the, the, church kind of, the church age starts and they start spreading the news about Jesus. And Paul's like, I got to put a stop to this. And then God intervenes. He's walking on this road. He sees a blinding light and Jesus himself appears to him. You kind of have to appreciate this. Like, this gives you insight into who Paul was. It takes a blinding light on the road for someone like Saul, who is so focused on doing good, to have this 180 and become the chief advocate and the loudest voice for the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Saul was not going to change and get there on his own. Like, there was no way. God had to, like, grab him and set him off in this new direction. And that's what happens. Saul, he converts, he starts following Jesus, he gets baptized, and God sends him to these Gentile cities to tell people about Jesus. And that becomes kind of his mission in life until the day he dies, is to start churches and uh, tell Gentiles about Jesus. At that point, Saul starts going by his Greek name, Paul. He starts traveling and planting churches with his good friend Barnabas in all these Gentile cities. And that, when you read his epistles, that's what they are, is they're letters to these churches that he's planted in these Gentile cities or to leaders within these churches. So right, what we see really with this guy is we see with Paul a man who is passionate about what is Right? He cares deeply about goodness. He cares deeply about making the world the way that it should be. And, and that comes through in his writings. His epistles, they're deeply theological books like he spends an enormous amount of time explaining Jesus and the gospel and how it all kind of fits together with the Old Testament promises and the Old Testament law and he's the guy who kind of explains all of that stuff and we still use that understanding today. He spends a lot of time like correcting faulty beliefs. That was a passion of his. It was a time in the church when there was still a lot of confusion over like people knew Jesus but they weren't sure like what actually is different and how do we understand what we're supposed to do now? And Paul was a guy who stepped into that uncertainty, and he said, no, 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 that's not what what it is. This is the truth over here, and he clarified theology for people, helped them understand what was right, and then he helped them live it out. It wasn't enough just to believe it, believe rightly, but Paul wanted people to live rightly, so he gives a lot of instruction in his books about, hey, do this, not this over here. Uh, If you've read the Enneagram stuff, this is the case that I would make. I could be wrong. We don't know for sure, but I would suggest that Paul maybe is an Enneagram one that that was how he was oriented. He's passionate about making the world a better place. He was disciplined to do what was right, to do what was good. I bet he probably had some perfectionist tendencies as a person. And you see, like in his younger life, this way that God made him, that was like how God created him to be to care about this stuff but it kind of got in his way. He didn't understand how God's plan could be Jesus and his passion for doing what was right took over and you see that, that Paul winds up being opposed to the God that he loves because he didn't understand. But then you see God redeem it and he changes this trajectory in his life and suddenly like he is this powerful voice for goodness is found only in Jesus and there's grace before God and he loves us in the midst of our sin. Remember Philippians 3, we were reading earlier, Paul saying, I did everything right. If anyone had bragging rights, it was me. Uh, But then he says this amazing statement, Philippians 3, verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. That's really a stunning statement for a guy like Paul with his background. Like I thought it would be interesting to see, like if young Saul could have heard old Paul say that phrase, I mean, young Saul would have lost his mind. He would have been like, what do you mean our righteousness is garbage. That's like what... God is righteous. We're working for righteousness, aren't we? It was such a turnaround in Paul's life. You know, if you're oriented like Paul, you may find that you tend to see the world in terms of right and wrong. That may be your orientation. You may find that you tend to be a little bit more black and white in how you see things. You may find that you're constantly struggling to make the world what it could be. And you may find that you have high standards for yourself and for others. Like if you're the sort of person who has ever reloaded the dishwasher because somebody else loaded it wrong. Am I the only one who's ever done that? Okay, a couple of hands. You, you may have a little bit of Paul in you, right? And I think what we learn from Paul's life is this. People who are oriented that way, the most transforming experience they could ever have that they need day after day is to encounter the utter righteous perfection of Jesus Christ. is better than a well-loaded dishwasher. I mean, it is the goodness that we are all looking for, and it was the goodness that somebody like Paul was ultimately looking for. It was found in trusting not what he, was, he had done and not in, in what he could create, but it was found in trusting the goodness of Christ, and that was the journey of Paul's life. This thing inside of him that he loved what is right, it was his biggest weakness and then God redeemed it, and it became his biggest strength. And until he found Jesus, it was absolutely destroying him. But then when he trusted Jesus, it redeemed so much for him. Jesus found him, Jesus brought him to the table, Jesus sat him down with everyone else in his kingdom. What do you think it would be like if you were like at the table with a guy like Paul? You know, I think Paul's can be great, Uh, Like, they could be really helpful because they care so deeply about how we live and how we think. Paul's the sort of guy who can look at something and, like, right away tell you what's wrong with it, tell you how it could be better. Like, that's Paul's gift to the world is, hey, we could make this better. Or that's not quite complete. You didn't go far enough. Let's do more. People like Paul have this knack for leaving things better than they found. And you see that in Paul's life. All of his letters, they're kind of oriented that way. They're like, hey, this is how we could step into this thing more fully. They're full of encouragement and challenge and suggestions. Let me ask you this. How do you think Paul got along with Peter? Like Paul, who is so focused on what's right, and Peter, who seems really focused on freedom and adventure, how do you think they got along? Well, not always really well, you may not be surprised to know. Uh, If you have a Bible, you can read this later, but Galatians 2, Paul talks about like when he and Peter went toe-to-toe and they fought, and I love Paul, this is very Paul, he says, I opposed Peter to his face. Like, that's a very Paul phrase. And what happened was, Peter, he was hanging out with all these Gentile believers, and he was, like, full of all this grace for these people who weren't really following all the Jewish laws, and then these Jewish teachers came to town, and all of a sudden, he's like, no, 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 I'm going to hang out with these guys, and i am not really talk to those guys, and Paul's like, wrong, that's not how you do it, Peter, and he confronts him on it, and I love this phrase, I opposed him to his face. Some of you all have lived your entire life, and you have never once opposed a person to their face, like Paul says. Some of you have done it three times this week, you know? um, You just, you like that. You just, that's who you are, you know? You just like to argue or I don't know. But I think this is it, and this is it for Paul. I don't think it was that he liked to argue. I think for Paul, it was the principle of the thing. You ever use that phrase? It's the principle of the thing, and I think Paul—he loved good relationships. He didn't like conflict, or maybe he did—I don't know. But it—it it was just this feeling: I can't sit by when something's not right. I have to say something, and that was Paul. If he sees something wrong, it really bothers him. He has a good uh, friend, Barnabas, right? And he has this falling out with Barnabas. And the falling out was because Barnabas wanted to give this guy, John Mark, a second chance. And John Mark had abandoned Paul and Barnabas on a previous journey that they took. And so Paul says, Paul, he has high standards for himself. He has high standards for others. He says, no, we're not going to give this guy another chance. He blew it. And so Barnabas and Paul separate Now, it is worth noting, a lot of these things that happen in Paul's life, they were earlier on, right? So maybe he wasn't as seasoned or mature, like Galatians, one of the earlier books that Paul wrote, and this thing with Barnabas, it happens early on, and it seems like, if you read the arc of Scripture, that Paul softens a little bit towards people as he gets older. He reconciles with John Mark, he reconciles with Peter, he probably reconciles with Barnabas and everybody else in his life. And you see this, this passion, though, for what is good, that it is both the best thing about Paul and sometimes that's the worst thing about Paul. And when you're sitting at the table with a Paul, you are going to hear about what needs to change. That's just what Paul was created to see. Sometimes that might frustrate you, but sometimes they are going to see a vision of the way the world could be if we just had the courage to go there. And we're going to need to hear that from them. What does someone like Paul need? I think that's the thing that's so great about Paul as he tells us Uh, Paul's need to realize that while God created them to make the world a better place, they have to receive God's love for them in the midst of their imperfections. That's what it took for Paul to be whole. People like Paul need to know that everything does not have to be right or perfect to be good. Everything does not have to be right in order for you to be worthy of love. Uh, Same chapter we've been in, Philippians 3, Paul says this, listen to this, not that I've already obtained all this, all this is just all the good stuff that he's striving for, or have arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. If you are an Enneagram 1, this maybe should be your life verse because what Paul's saying is this I am not quite there yet. I haven't arrived at this goodness that I long for. That's like classic Paul. It's not just that he's hard on other people, he is hard on himself and he, he is his own harshest critic. He holds himself to this high standard and he says, Listen, I'm working so hard, but I'm not quite there yet. But, and this is really important for somebody like Paul, even though I haven't arrived, I recognize Jesus has grabbed hold of me. Jesus wants me. Jesus accepts me, even though I'm not there yet. And that's Paul at his best. When he was at his best, he lives from this place of security. He lives from this idea that Jesus loved him, that Jesus chose him, despite the fact that he was, this is his own words, the worst of all sinners. I used to always think that was like hyperbole, like Paul's like, I'm the worst of all sinners. No, I think a guy like Paul would look at himself and he would judge himself that way. There's nobody least deserving than me. He says, but still, Jesus has chosen me. I, I would suggest this. If you find yourself kind of seeing yourself in Paul a little bit, you're like, yeah, I got a little bit of that Paul in me. Maybe a spiritual discipline that would be really important for you to practice is the discipline of personal confession. Now, caveat, I'm not saying that because if you're a Paul, you need to know where you failed. Because if you're oriented like Paul, like you are constantly aware of how you're not measuring up. I was talking to somebody in the first service, uh, and she said to me, I hope this is okay to share. Don't spread this around. But she said to me, like I'm the worst Enneagram one ever. And I'm like, that's exactly what an Enneagram one would say. Like she was judging herself harshly, right? Um, So Paul doesn't need to be aware of, hey, he hasn't measured up, but that's not really what confession is about. Confession, when you hear that word, also hear in the back of your mind the word agreement. Confession is about agreement. It is about agreeing with God that your sins are forgiven. It is about acknowledging, God, yes, that is a sin. I did not measure up in that way. But it's not just about that agreement. It is also about the agreement that my sin was totally paid for by Jesus Christ's death on the cross. And it is agreeing with God that I am whole and that I am loved despite that sin. And sometimes we just confess and we're like, I'm so sorry, God. We don't ever get to that part where we're agreeing with God that because of Jesus' saving work, we are accepted. That's personal confession, and I think for someone like Paul who holds themselves to this really high standard, that act of confession, especially like if you involve another believer, like if Paul did that with Peter, and Peter could echo back to him, yeah, I know, I know you failed, Paul. Jesus still really loves you. That is what's transformative for a Paul. It reminds you that your ability to meet the standards is not what makes you acceptable to God, but it is Jesus' love for you and his righteousness. That's what makes everything right, and that's what allows someone like Paul, who tends to want things to be just right, that's what allows a Paul to give grace to himself and to others. How do we sit with Paul? If you're hearing all this stuff and you're like, gosh, I am nothing like that. I don't hold myself to a high standard at all. Uh, So what is it like to sit down at the table with somebody like Paul? First, let's just acknowledge this. We all need people like Paul in our life and in our churches. Like, If you are a Paul we need you here. Like we desperately need you here. You are a part of the kingdom that we need here at Pulpit Rock. We may at times get annoyed at your perfectionist tendencies, uh, but we can see that without Paul, we would lose so much. I mean, just think about this. In the Bible, without Paul's letters, we would be missing so much incredible theology that is so redemptive to all of us because Paul had this capacity to see how everything fit together in God's plan and then to persuade us to embrace it and to live it out. If we don't have a Paul at our table, then we tend to drift. If we don't have a Paul at our table, sometimes we tend to settle for something maybe less than what God wants for us. We need Pauls at our table so we can see what could be better. But this is also something important. If we're sitting at a table with Paul, uh, we need to recognize they also need us. And when we get frustrated with them, that may be the point that they need us the most, to see the heart that is underneath the drive for perfection. People like Paul tend to be pretty hard on themselves. Um, You see this with the arc of his life in the Bible. I think God kept bringing people into Paul's life who could just love him. Who could just knock off some of those rough edges and just be present, loving him. And I think that's why you see him like soften. If you want to hear like some of the books later in his life, like Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and you just read that, those books, and it's just a little bit different tone. And I think you see the growth and the effect of people loving this man, Paul, and you see how that impacts him over time. I think Paul's need to hear this. You don't have to be perfect to be worthy of love and acceptance from God. That's what Paul needed to hear. That's what transformed his life. That's what he speaks so eloquently about, is we trust in the goodness of Christ, not our own. He's grabbed us, even in our imperfections. And there can be goodness and love, even when there's flaws, even when there's problems. That's what Paul learned. And uh, this is why I think the, the mature Paul was like worlds different than the immature Saul. Now, I know we're just getting started here. So we have Peter and we have Paul. That's just two chairs filled up. But already, can you see the conflict? Can you see like just how the differences in motivations can make this really complex? Have you ever wondered like, why is church sometimes frustrating? Well, it's just complex. It's hard to navigate this stuff. But could you also see this? Because you see how with just these two characters, this Peter who loves adventure, Paul who loves what's right, if they could just get on the same page, like they have something that the other does not have and instantly both of them would benefit. That's why God brought him to the table. I promise you this, that Paul's influence on Peter's life helped him to live a more consistent life. And I bet Peter's influence on Paul's life maybe got Paul to smile every once in a while, right? I mean, there was something there. They need each other. And listen, we need each other also. And that's the point. God has put something in you that I don't have and vice versa. There's going to be times that makes us frustrated with each other. But if we can appreciate and love what God has put in our brothers and sisters, it is convincing, right? The watching world sees it, and it is convincing. Oh, those, those people belong to Jesus. We have to understand ourselves, though. We have to understand each other. Um, And that's the hard part. So, two people. We're going to add a few more in these upcoming weeks. Let me pray over us that God would knit us together. God, we just confess this is hard for all of us. We tend to see the world our way but we just acknowledge and we confess this, God, we need the other people in this community. We need what they bring, even when we don't understand it. We need to be challenged and stretched outside of how we think about something. God, I pray that that you would knit us together in ways that reflect your dream, your dream of the kingdom, your dream of a people claimed by God grabbed hold of by Jesus, trusting in his righteousness. That's who we want to be. We want to embrace that dream, Lord. Refine us, soften us, so that we can walk with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.